As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. 
The Australian eSafety Commission surveyed frontline specialist law enforcement professionals from around the world in early 2021, and their research found that there have been marked increases in both online risk-taking by minors and in live streaming of abuse material since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. If you would like to talk to someone about online exploitation, you can call Crime Stoppers on 1-800-333-000 or go to crimestoppers.com.au. Lux in some ways stands out and in some ways just like the other darknet pedophiles that I spoke to. He was different, I think, in that he was uh, singularly hated by other pedophiles, like entire communities of other pedophiles really, really despised Lux because he promoted hurtcore, which is a genre within a genre, right? It's a genre of child pornography in which the idea is that the kid is getting hurt and hit and abused beyond beyond the normal level of, of abuse of child pornography. And that is something that other pedophiles hate. It's funny to call them that, but the mainstream pedophiles basically think of this as abhorrent because as part of their the justification of their actions, they see themselves as a part of child love. While that requires its own twisted sense of justification, it's another level to say that the kid wants to be hit. That's journalist Patrick O'Neill, who specialises in reporting on the dark web. Dark web is a term we all throw around these days, but only because of people like Patrick O'Neill and our guest, Australian journalist Eileen Ormsby, who literally wrote the book. In fact, she's written seven books about the dark web, but it was her first book, Silk Road, about the so-called eBay of hard drugs that began the exposure of the darkest corners of the internet to the world. A year after Silk Road's release, Eileen sat in a courtroom. A year after Silk Road's release, Eileen sat in a courtroom looking at a man who was once the internet's most wanted and elusive trafficker of violent child abuse material. His true identity was shocking. We'll talk about that a little bit later and the methods used by international law enforcement agencies to shut down operations like his. But first, we begin with some basics. I wanted to become a fiction writer, a, a chiclet writer, when I um, started at RMIT. But then one of the classes I was doing was journalism, and they said, oh, you know, try pitching a feature to some newspapers. That was in 2012, and I'd heard about Silk Road, which was the first of the major darknet markets, the point-and-click drugs markets. And I've always been a, a drug law reform advocate, so I, I'm very against the war on drugs. Um, you know, I believe that... Prohibition is actually killing more people than it's saving, and uh, I think it should be legalised and regulated and, and people be educated about it, just, you know, the way we do with other things. And so um, when Silk Road came along, it was like this new era of drug dealing that sort of had safety at the forefront of it, and I had friends that were using it, and, uh, you know, they showed it to me, and it was like, oh, wow, this is, you know, amazing. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. And so I pitched that to The Age as, as a story. 
And uh, the editor got back to me and, and said, oh, we'll, we'll run this as a feature. And it took up a, a full page. So my very first article in print was a full page in, in The Age. And after that, the editor came to me and said, oh, you know, have you got any other stories on this dark web? We've never heard about it. And so I gave them another story on the dark web. And from there, then on, I became Fairfax's go-to journalist for the dark web story. So that just led me deeper and deeper into the dark web, you know, well beyond Silk Road and into everything else that surrounded it. And I also found it really fascinating. The original Silk Road was, it was much more than a place to buy and sell drugs. It was this massive community of people that believed that they were in this revolution you know, it came out a bit further down the track that it wasn't quite the, the peaceful revolution that everybody thought and dreamed it was. But at the time, it was like this utopia for people. And there was a lot of interesting people to talk to about that. And, you know, and I, I enjoyed my time in the dark web, especially on the Silk Road forums and, and becoming part of it and understanding it right from the ground roots and, and why people were involved with it, why the sellers were there, why the people that owned the markets were taking that sort of risk and uh, why the buyers liked it. I was talking to Ginger Gorman a few weeks ago about trolls, about trolling online. Specifically, she was sort of, we were talking about that leading into terrorism. And we were talking about the idea that initially these things always seem to start with this utopian idea of the internet and online forums as as a positive place of everyone having a voice. And then they seem to devolve into places of horror. Is that your experience? Uh Less so on the dark web than on the clear web. Really? Yeah. I I think some of those uncensored forums on the clear web just devolve into absolute rubbish garbage uh, very, very quickly. You know, I'm not a big one for censorship, but you can't have these forums, big forums, without a moderator or, you know, a certain amount of moderation going on. And um, the dark web was quite heavily moderated in a lot of ways, even though it was, you know, it's this um, place where anything goes a lot of the forums were still quite heavily moderated and, and people really did, um, you know, live and die by their reputations but under their usernames, even though they're anonymous. Um, their usernames, the reputation behind those usernames was everything because that's the only thing you've got when you're on the dark web. Yeah, okay. So how did Silk Road work, by the way? My understanding is that I got, I downloaded Tor I always think, think, and I've, uh, I've never done it, but somehow I so saw I download a thing called Tor. That's a search engine, I think. And then through that, I get onto the dark web. I think I click on it and it takes me to this place called the dark web. And then I can open Silk Road. And then I say, I'll have some heroin, please. And then I pay for it with Bitcoin. And then it sends it to me in the post. Is that how it works? It's kind of, generally speaking, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's Terrific. Not, not unlike that. So it is. So the dark web is just really the colloquial name that we give to um, all of these websites that can only be accessed using something like Tor. So, and the way you know that you've got a dark web address rather than a regular address is instead of your usual signifiers like .com, .org, .net, it says .onion on the end. And if you were to try to put that into your regular browser, into your Chrome or your Safari or whatever, it just comes up as uh, page not found, does not exist. If you download Tor, that opens up another browser, looks exactly like your regular browsers, so it's actually a browser, not a search engine. And then you put that that address in there and all of a sudden it can find that address. Okay. Uh, so you have to know the exact address of the place that you're looking for. Okay. But I feel like the police will know. I feel like if I, if I, if I try and download Tor even, I feel like there'll be a knock at my door in 15 minutes and the cops will be there saying, why? What do you want Tor for? What are you up to, lady? Won't they? Well, Tor is completely legal. Uh, uh-huh. Tor was actually developed 
um, by the US military or in conjunction with the US military, and it was designed to um, look after military secrets and, and um, you know, CIA secrets and designed to um, protect whistleblowers. So it's actually just a, a protection, um, a privacy protection tool, just like many other things are. And it, it is used for those things. It's used for whistleblowers. Um, the CIA has a site on the dark web. Uh, the Guardian has a site on the dark web so that you can uh, upload documents without any way of that being traced back to you. So for whistleblowers, so um, you know, and all the all the big news sites have a, a dark web presence. So it's not just drugs and and uh, guns and that sort of thing. There there are legitimate uses for it, and some people just use it for browsing. So it is just a browser and. The difference with it is it's not tracking everything you do. There are no cookies looking at what you've been to before and what you're going to and no advertisers are following you around tour. So you can actually browse without leaving that digital footprint that you're always leaving when you're on your regular web. Can I browse regular sites using tour if I just want to use it for that purpose? I just don't want to be tracked. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's a bit of a pain in the ass because, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of things we do, we do for convenience. So you know, you're always logged into your favourite sites and all that, and um, you know they re- remember your uh, passwords and everything. Whereas that never happens on tour. So when you're browsing, it's like you're a brand new first time user every single time. So it can be a bit slow, um, and it is slower in general than your normal browsers anyway. So it's a bit like going back to dial-up days. <laughs> If you, if you remember what that was like, which was fine back in dial-up days, but now that we're used to what we're used to, it's um, it's agonisingly slow. But it can certainly be used. Yeah, if you if you want to do just regular browsing, um, you know, Google for things that you don't want left on your computer or whatever, you can do that using Tor. So much of our usage is accepting the inconvenience of our movements being traced for the convenience of laziness, of of the fact that the websites know our passwords so I don't have to go through the, oh, the hassle of typing in those eight letters or whatever it is or remembering all those passwords. And and for that convenience, I'm giving up a lot of my privacy and I'm letting people track me. My 11-year-old daughter even said to me, you know, when, when there was the conspiracy theory about the COVID vaccine implanting microchips into our bodies or whatever, no. and my 11-year-old daughter said, oh, for Christ's sake, they're all being tracked with their phones. They're walking around carrying tracking devices. Every, every single thing that they do is being tracked as long as they've got that phone in their hand. And none of us reads the terms and conditions of anything, ever. No, I've read somewhere that um, in order to read all of the terms and conditions that you click I, I agree to, you'd have to be literally reading for something like six months a year. Yeah. The other thing I found really interesting, I was reading your book, The Darkest Web, and I think a point that you're making, or certainly a point that I took away from that book, was an idea that perhaps there are some sort of cliched old ideas that weren't real that were actually fiction, but then have become real because of the internet. Ideas like snuff films, for example. As I was reading, I felt like you were saying, listen, was that real or was it fiction until the internet? And then people made it real. Yeah, well, well, what's what's happened with the use of the internet is think more things are being captured on video than ever before. But the, the old myth of the, the snuff film was, you know, it, there was directors and producers and camera people and sound people and you know, they they was there and the murder of the person involved was only for the film and then the film got uh, distributed around for money. That's still not a thing that has ever been, there's not never been a, a verified snuff film. However, it is 
not real in the way that we think about it, and it's usually a, a pornographic thing with, as you say, a young woman. Um, it is real when it comes to children. So you, you mean it has always been real in that way? Uh, no, I don't think it's always been real. It is because, and, and one of the things especially the dark web has done, you know, it has its good uses, but then it has its really, really, really bad uses. And one of the things it's done is uh, because of the way the dark web operates. So you've got things like your, your drug markets, and they are designed to be found. They are—they don't want to be hidden away. They want customers. So you know, they advertise, and they're out there, and anyone can go and find where you can go and buy drugs online uh, on the dark web. So in the old days, before the dark web. These sorts of things had to be really clandestine. So you had to know somebody or you had to know exactly where to go to find these things, and it wasn't openly advertised to everybody because if they put up a link of where to go and find this shop, then the IP would be traced and it would be shut down immediately. The dark web gets around that. So, you know, the IP can't be traced so they can advertise um, out there, which is one thing for drugs. It's a completely different thing when the child predator forums are doing the exact same thing. And so all of a sudden, these people that had these predilections that you know, they could never tell anybody, they had to keep completely within themselves, they've got a community now that they can go and find. So once again, the dark web can advertise. This is where you come if you want to talk to child predators that like to look at, uh, at naked children or worse. And they have, you know, different levels of, of, of those sorts of things in there. So it has created this place where these communities can come together and share all their materials. And the sharing of their materials, they've, they've been able to monetize it as well. Although unlike the drugs, the drugs is all about money. Unlike the drugs, the actual child predator forums are more about a sharing economy. So the way that people get access to higher levels of these sites, these child predator sites, is by uploading new material. And so you can either get there by uploading new material or paying money. And that's where there's now a commerce side to it as well. And so people are producing videos for the money. And the videos do go beyond what you might think as regular child porn, which is a horrible thing to say, but it, it, it's worse than that. video called Daisy's Destruction and it's it's place in a famous bust of a um, pedophile ring and and that ring was was sort of there was a pivotal character in that ring who who was actually based in Melbourne or um and, and this guy was interesting for a lot of reasons he was interesting because he he had created a persona for himself that was very different to his his real life he um he the, the persona that he created sort of uh, meant that he he became more and more grandiose in the material that he was encouraging people to submit online and it sort of culminated in this terrible film, Daisy's Destruction. But it, you sort of also make the point that a number of people involved talked about, a number of men involved, talked about the fact that they, they didn't have pedophilic predilection 
predilections earlier in their lives, that they wandered into this community and then, you know, became involved in creating the content. Sorry, we're back. Um, We dropped out for a second. And then they became involved in, in creating the content. And we've spoken before to specialists in the area who say that, you know, of child offenders, a very small percentage are actually pedophiles in the clinical sense. Did you find that? There's a whole range of them, and a lot of the the pedophiles, you know, they consider themselves child lovers, and they hate the hurt core side of it. They hate the the torture and the, the horrible worst side of it just as much as anybody hates. It's got a name. It's called hurt core, yeah. And it is a very tiny subset of an already gross collection of people. It's a very tiny subset of those those people that are into into that. Yeah, the the person you were talking about, Lux, who owned you know what was considered the most heinous site ever to existed at the time, uh, hurt to the core. He did not, or he seemed to not have any pedophilic tendencies, and he was never a contact offender. There was absolutely no evidence that he was a contact offender at any time. What he did have was um, the need for people to look up to him and to think that he was someone special. And, you know, he couldn't do that in any regular way. The only way he could do that was providing people with the most extreme videos, the most extreme material of anybody on the dark web. So most of the people on the dark web, you know, hated him and reviled him, but there was this small subset that just thought he was like a god, and that's what he he really needed. Wow, so he just found this community, stumbled upon this community where that was possible. Pretty much, yeah. That's the other thing. I assume, and I think a lot of people do, that the dark web is all about child porn, just all about it. How much of it really is dedicated to child porn? And I assume that if I click on the dark web, I'm going to accidentally see child porn immediately. Um, no, probably not, unless you're looking for it. Um, that, that said, so it, there is a large, it's a large amount of it is child porn. It's drug, drugs, hacking and child porn. And that's pretty much the, the commerce side of the dark web. If you go on the dark web, generally you've got an address that you want to go to, so you already know where you're going to, but there are entry points. So there's, um, you know, an address that you go to and then that's got a whole bunch of links of uh, different places to go. Now, normally it will be very clear. It's telegraphed exactly what you are going to look at. And so you'd have to click on that link in order to go there. Sometimes something will have a thumbnail and you think, oh, that looks dodgy. Definitely not clicking that link. But it's unlikely that you're, you will just stumble on it. But there are, of course, there are people that go down the rabbit hole and there are things like, um, what they call, like a search engine, but it's like what they call a crawler, which just picks up all the new dark web sites as they come on. And sometimes they don't have details next to them of what they are. They're just like a link. And dark web links are not, they're not like, um, you know, silkroad.onion. They are this long string of letters and, and characters that don't make any sense. So they don't really signify what's behind them. So unless they have a little thing underneath that says what, what it is, you know, if, you, if you're the sort of person that's going to go and click out of curiosity, then yes, you will definitely stumble across child porn. But by the other token of that, you will stumble across the front page of a, a site but then you you have to sign up and go in to get to, you know, the really deep stuff. So, um, you know, you, you're taking a positive action in order to actually access the worst of the worst. 
but sometimes they they will have these photos on their their front page. So you know, when I'm taking people through it, I'm, I'm always like, do not click on anything that looks like this. Don't click on anything that says take me to a random site. Um, any of those sorts of things. It, it, it's you can definitely be on there and completely avoid it. Like I haven't seen any child porn since uh, probably when I first started on the dark web because I, I know how to avoid it. Okay, so you have, but but not you know. Not easily and not for a long time. and No, and and when I say I have, it's like it's it's been sort of, you know, like I say, that thumbnail out of the corner of your eye where you say, I'm not going there. That's not something I want to see. How, how common do you think it is, though, that people do wander on there and have a quick look out of curiosity? Oh, I have no doubt that people do that. If you go onto the Reddit forums, of, like the, the deep web, dark web Reddit forums, there's a whole lot of people that, that say, oh, I was curious and I clicked something and then I'm never going to do that again. It was the worst thing. I've cleaned my computer and I'm waiting for the FBI to bust my, my door down. So I think that does happen. Certainly the number of people that were seeking out Daisy's destruction so, uh, and the number of people that admitted openly that they were seeking it out because they were curious, because they'd heard it's the worst video that's ever circulated the internet. They wanted to see it, wanted to see it for themselves. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of people that have that curiosity about them, and I know that many of them, when they they see like two seconds of something like that, they never want to see anything again. They realise that this is really the most depraved thing that that can be there and no one needs to see that. I haven't seen it, but when I was in the the courtroom, the judge had to go and, and watch it. And when he came back, he was just, you know, white as a sheet. After the break, how Daisy's destruction, the most notorious child abuse video ever made, was the undoing of Lux, the internet's most wanted man. His real identity is shocking. And our guest Eileen Ormsby talks about the surreal experience of looking at him in a courtroom. Thank you to our patrons, CJ Ryan, Demi's Revenge, Rebecca, Jenster, Jackie Fairbairn, and Nikki Kelly. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Victoria Police's Australia Task Force raided a house in a quiet cul-de-sac in South Morang on the outer fringes of Melbourne in August 2014. They were executing a search warrant based on intelligence collected by the FBI, Europol, Canadian Police and Queensland Police's task force Argos that suggested someone residing in the home was running an international online empire dealing in exploitation material of the most extreme category. They knew the household consisted of a family unit, two parents and a son and a daughter. Most police believed the father was the person they were looking for, He was a mechanic and a panel beater in his 50s. Sergeant Christine Stafford, however, went in with an interest in the sun. Her pre-raid research told her that for a young person not long out of high school, he had a suspiciously scant online footprint. When asked to unlock his laptop during the raid, he refused. But he did hand over his phone, which was a mistake. Either he'd forgotten or thought he'd permanently deleted the three images of extreme child abuse stored in the cache. It was enough to charge him with possession of child exploitation material and take him into custody. Sergeant Christine Stafford spoke to Fairfax newspapers about that day. Before obviously going in, we knew who Lux was, the user. He was considered the worst administrator of some of the worst websites in the world at the time. So we knew who the user was, we just had to make the connection to um, that Lux was Matthew Graham. When I first saw him on the day that we served the warrant, I was surprised by his confidence, that he was quite calm in that environment. In his mind, I can't imagine how that would have been going, him thinking, have they got me? Um, Because obviously there's a bit of bluff. What we've got, what we don't have, not all our cards are played at the time. The level of and the type of content that he was dealing with was, it was considered the worst in the world by FBI, by Europol. It was hardcore, hurtcore material. So torture and abuse of babies, mainly through to I think about 12. He was surprising. When it got to the interview, how candid and open he was to talk about that level of depravity that it didn't, didn't flinch, it just rolled off his tongue what he was talking about. It was staggering to think that the, you know, the FBI and Europol are all tracing Lux, who is he, where is he, and lo and behold, he's here. And he's a 21-year-old. The most wanted trafficker of child exploitation material in the world was Melbourne University student Matthew David Graham, who lived at home with his parents and his sister and ran his empire from his childhood bedroom. The, the person you were talking about, Lux, who owned you know, what was considered the most heinous site ever to exist at the time, uh, hurt to the core, what he did have was the need for people to look up to him and to think that he was someone special. And the only way he could do that was providing people with the most extreme 
videos, the most extreme material of, of anybody on the dark web. So most of the people on the dark web, you know, hated him and reviled him, but there was this small subset that just thought he was like a god, like Daisy's Destruction, the worst video that's ever circulated the internet. I haven't seen it, but the, the, when I was in the, in the courtroom, the judge had to go and, and watch it, and when he came back, he was just, you know, white as a sheet. In the book, you talked about that the argument that, that went on in the case uh, between the prosecution and the defence, and the prosecution was fighting very hard for the judge to view the material. And the judge was saying, look, I don't think I need to, I get it. A defence was saying, he gets it, I don't think he needs to. And prosecution was saying, no, I think he does, because it's, you know, it's very serious material that this Lux character has fought, and, and he fought really hard to get it on his site. You know, he really wanted it on his site. Meanwhile, the man in question... Lux, in inverted commas, was sobbing at the back of the court, you wrote. What a fascinating situation. Yeah, well, um, I mean, the whole thing was, it was horribly tragic. I mean, his family were there. God. Uh, his mother and his father and his sister. Uh, and they had no idea. They genuinely had no idea what was going on under their nose. And anyone that's got a teenage boy knows that they lock themselves in their room and you have no idea what they're doing on the internet. When he started, I think he was about 17, 18. He was only, he was only very young. So he was 22 by the time he got to court, and he was he was very much your typical friendless, uh, unpopular teen. And his, his parents had tried to get help for him um, over the years, and uh, yeah, it was just it was an absolutely horrifying thing, especially to just watch his father sit there, a broken man, just you know could not believe what he was hearing come out in the evidence. You know, there's three days of this evidence going on, and it was very detailed evidence of exactly what you could find on this site. And, yeah, it was just, it was traumatic for all involved. What sort of sentence did he cop after all of that? He got 17 years. I can't imagine he was very well equipped for prison, by the way, this young man. No. Um, like, I, I'd be surprised if he survives prison. He, he didn't look like the sort that was well equipped for prison. I'm assuming that he would go to a, a special one that, that houses uh, child abusers. Um, but even then... They're not nice either. Yeah. From, from what no. I've heard. It's the one place where law enforcement actually works together worldwide. There's been other sites as well um, that are larger on scale, not, not, as, um, not as violent but larger on scale, and there was, they, they have used some very controversial tactics, including one where they uh, took over, so they, they, they busted the guy that was running one of these sites. I can never remember if it's Child's Play or Playpen. It was one of those two. And they, they busted the guy and then they took over that site and ran it for a year. The, the reason they did that was because they didn't re really want the guy that's running the site. They want the people that are abusing the children. And in order to, to catch those people, there's law enforcement officers whose job it is to sit down and watch these videos frame by frame by frame to see if they can see anything in the background, anything in the house that you know might identify who the child is, where they are in the world, who the perpetrator is, and to find them. Like there was another Australian guy that got recognised by a freckle on his finger in one of these these sites and just people piecing together all this stuff and then tracking down the actual perpetrators, the people that are actually carrying out the abuse on these children. And, yeah, they, they all uh, they work together really well. And a lot of it's led out of Queensland, actually. These worldwide task forces are actually led out of Queensland. You know, Australia's considered the gold standard to a certain extent. Yes, and actually I read in your book, amazingly, the little girl from Daisy's Destruction, who was about, I think, 18 months old in that video, 
she was located. Yeah, well, so she she was located. So, you know, a lot of people think that Daisy's Destruction is a snuff film, which it's not because Daisy did survive it, albeit with horrendous injuries that she'll carry through her life. Um, so she, she was saved and put into care. However, there was the person that produced Daisy's Destruction. He was another Australian guy living in the Philippines called Peter Scully. He produced a lot of these films and there was the remains of a 12-year-old girl found in his house that he had buried. So um, there's rumours, of course, that her death is on film, but nobody has found that particular film. I feel like Australian men are overrepresented with child producers of child exploitation material. They seem to be. They really seem to be. Maybe it's because we take more notice because we're Australian, but certainly on, on this whole dark website, like, Australians are overrepresented in general, especially in the, the drug buying. So but per capita, we're, we're very high. And that's mainly because of our borders and it's much harder and more expensive to get drugs here in generally. So much easier to get them in the mail. But also, yeah, on the, the child predator side of things, the, the child abuse sites, we seem to be overrepresented in maybe not the users, but the ones that are doing the producing and the, and the, the websites themselves. And, yeah, so now the um, certainly the, the drug side of things are actually moving off the dark web into apps now, in encrypted apps. Uh, there's something called Televend, which uses the Telegram app, and, um, you know, you can go and, and find dealers through that now. So it is evolving all the time, and these the, the great big point-and-click drugs markets, I think, are, are on the way down. There's not as many of them as there used to be. They're still there, and there's, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to be made. The other issue is Bitcoin. So uh, people thought that Bitcoin was anonymous and it's actually the complete opposite, as in every single transaction that's ever been made in Bitcoin, anyone can go and see that. Anyone can go and look at it on the blockchain, which means that the only thing is, you know, you don't know who's either side of that transaction. But once law enforcement knows who's on one side of that transaction, there's technology now that can trace that Bitcoin all the way until it gets cashed out by somebody and then there's a human being picking it up on that other end. So there's a lot of people that have been brought undone by by their Bitcoin transactions. So the dark web is now moving to another cryptocurrency called Monero because of that. The traceability of Bitcoin is actually still getting people now from back in the Silk Road days. So people that were vendors back then, they would have made a mistake with their Bitcoin address and they're still getting caught now. If you would like to talk to someone about online exploitation, you can call Crime Stoppers on 1-800-333-000 or go to crimestoppers.com.au. Thank you to our guest, Eileen Ormsby. There's a link in the show notes to Eileen's website where you can buy all of her books on the dark web. There are also links to buy tickets to our live shows, including our upcoming Melbourne Podcast Festival show, featuring behind-the-scenes footage from the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine on the big screen at the Jam Factory Cinema. Thank you to our patrons, Fiona Hughes, Kathleen Williams, Ruby Callanan, Gail P, Sam Dobbin and Ruth. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.